This week on Go Track Yourself, we're talking Season 4, Episode 21, Chuck versus the Wedding Planner. And last week, Erin said that she wanted to marry Vivian Volkov's haircut. So today we are planning that wedding. Erin, um, what color do you want the invitations to be? Well, I think they should be like kind of the same auburn color as Vivian's lovely hair. Um, maybe with like, let's say like cream accents, maybe even peach. Vivian's haircut. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm really partial to the color blue. I want a blue invitation. Okay, Aaron, it sounds like Vivian's haircut has a different color palette choice than you. Mm. Is there some kind of compromise between auburn and uh, blue? Would it be purple? We just combine them together? Okay, so we'll do purple invites. How do you, how do you feel about that, my sweet? I'm okay with that, my love. Um, all right, so how about the cake? What do you guys want to do about the cake? I was thinking styrofoam, actually. Welcome to the Go Chuck Yourself non-Father's Day, Father's Day Spectacular. Gary Cole's back, mother chuckers. We're talking about dads this week. It's it's Go Chuck Yourself. My name is, is Chris Gillespie. My name is Aaron Arana. And, boy, uh, we love dads on this show. Boy, we usually, you know, we have Father's Day episodes sometimes on Father's Day. It is, of course, uh, we're recording this at the end of February, so it's nowhere near Father's Day. <laughs> but it certainly feels like a Father's Day episode. I don't think this episode aired probably near father's day either um but well, it would have been like april 18th i think yeah oh you know what i think father's day did fall early uh in 2011 so that makes sense i think every once every 100 years father's day falls in april you could be telling the truth or making a joke and i wouldn't know uh, i am of course making a joke that is what we do here at go chuck yourself uh we're talking season four episode 21 Guess what, everyone? I'm finally on the last disc of season four. Oh, that's amazing. Yep. Uh, longtime listeners of the show know that I watched this program on DVDs, my DVD collection of Chuck. Uh, I've been working my way through the season four set, and now I'm on the final disc. That is a disc that has uh, Ellie and Devin on it. And uh, Ellie is the image that they have of Ellie is of earlier in the season when she's slightly pregnant. And uh, it's, it feels like that was ages ago. It feels like it was a very long time because um her she's since uh fully gestated the baby i don't know if that's a proper use of that verb she's given birth to the baby and now the baby where we are roughly in the show is i think almost 16 i think she's getting ready to drive it feels like it's been a while that they they've covered in this season four okay i'm sorry um i'm a little bit distracted but mm -hmm. i googled father's day 2011 just to see um and apparently there's an action horror comedy film which is made by someone, um, it's it's Father's Day, it was made in 2011, it's a horror comedy, and it was directed by someone called Jeremy Gillespie? Is this, um, is this something you're involved with? Uh. Is this about how Father's Day is in April every hundred years, and you made a film about it under an assumed name? Of, of Jeremy? Yeah. Yes, I was waiting for the right time to tell you this, uh, but I... I have not only have I uh, told you about this once in a hundred years occurrence on Father's Day, I told the the American viewing public about it as well <laughs> in the hit blockbuster film Father's Day that uh, was released in 2011. It's about uh, if I was to pitch it, it's all about how, you know, this kind of once in a century occurrence happens on Father's Day following in April and it kind of causes everyone to lose their mind. So it kind of becomes like the purge. And everyone kind of oh, becomes mm -hmm. crazy and violent on Father's Day. So then this kind of April Father's Day develops this very kind of dark connotation. And it's all it's all very crazy. I mean, okay. we tried mm -hmm. doing a sequel, but um, with Father's Day following in June, the following year, everything was normal uh -huh. and people just had like cookouts or whatever. So it wasn't as mm -hmm. exciting. But the first one uh, I did, I did take on the mantle of Jeremy to uh, produce that film. And it's like it's an ensemble film, right? There's like like Julia Stiles is in it and like Bradley Cooper. Yeah, it's one of those movies. Um, we got Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ashton Kutcher was really hot at okay. the time. Yeah. Um, John Hamm makes kind of a smaller role. He was okay. known for Mad Men at the time, but wasn't like John Hamm yet. Yeah. Um, 
we also have Anne Hathaway has a pretty predominant role. Um, okay. And uh, I mean, we got some other people there. We got like um, Meryl Streep makes a very brief cameo. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a good pull. Robert De Niro stopped by the Ooh. set and just kind of, we didn't script him at all. He just kind of, he likes improvising. I don't know if you've ever worked with Bob, but he likes just <laughs> making up the lines as he goes along. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Well, I'm glad that this came to light because I really just want to like congratulate you for like what what else have you been doing under the mantle of Jeremy recently? Uh yeah, I've been working on a lot of different stuff. Um I'm I've been working on some um young readers novels uh called Jeremy the Detective, which is about a uh teenager named Jeremy who solves a lot of mysteries in his town. Okay. And uh, those those are really popular. I'm I'm looking forward. I'm kind of working on a media adaptation of those. Um, there's kind of been talks of like Netflix maybe picking it up for a Jeremy the Detective TV show. Um, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So there's that. Um, I'm also working on a um, ambient music album where it's kind of I just I, I go by Jay Gillespie for that, and that's just kind ah. of experimental sounds um, that kind of I feel like are very evocative of how I'm feeling. So. That that's um, going to be a, a a double disc CD. Um, it's going to be a four piece vinyl. So if you order the vinyl set now, um, comes with two vinyl records or no, sorry, four vinyl records, all of which are different colors. Um, if you're a fan of color vinyl like I am, you'll really enjoy the set. There is a turquoise record. There is a um, kind of like a, a goldish looking record. It's not exactly gold. Um, and then there's, of course, like a ruby red record. And then there's more of like a uh, forest green one. And that's all part of the uh, Jay Gillespie ambient music package uh, title. Uh, um, what we do under the stars is the title of that record. Wow. I am really glad I asked. Uh, this I wasn't really anticipating talking about all of these um, hobbies that I have or pastimes or other creative endeavors. But thank you for bringing it up and allowing me to share that with the Go Chuck Yourself listener. Um, something I also wanted to share, speaking of pastimes, hobbies. Um, if you are our listener, listen to an episode a few weeks back. I think it was Chuck versus the Cat Squad. Uh, we read some uh, fan mail from one of our listeners named Jeff S. And he uh, his pastime, his hobby, he likes watching Chuck. He likes watching Chuck a lot. And he also likes documenting how often certain lines are said, certain pieces of dialogue. So before we kind of covered his his findings about seasons one and two, he sent in his findings about season three. So I did want to share Ooh. those with, with I you, am so Aaron. excited. I think it kind of makes sense because, um, you know, Chuck versus the wedding planner, kind of a throwback to an earlier season with Gary Cole. Uh, uh-huh. This is a throwback to season three. Let's take a look. I'm sharing my screen with Aaron so we can see it. So something to keep in mind is that Jeff this time around got very granular in his analysis, maybe even too granular based off of what he said. He kind of feels like he maybe maybe zoomed in too closely. Um, Uh But what we are seeing is that there is a a list of words and how often they are said. Some of these are phrases. So some highlights that stand out to me. so, of course, you have like a word like sorry is said 58 times in the season three of Chuck, which all of the characters are very apologetic. I think at Chuck, they're very considerate. Yes, um, they are. Awesome is said 20 times. Uh, thank you said 48 times. Of course, everyone is very polite mm-hmm. in Chuck uh, thanking one another. Uh, and of course, I want to point this out. Let's take a look at it. Don't freak out. <sighs> I see it. It said. How many times is that, Aaron? It's 10. So I think that's the most maybe it's ever been said in a season. I think this is the season that Don't Freak Out really had its heyday. And you weren't really aware of that. It's true. The season of Aaron, I, they said Don't Freak Out a lot. But I do want to point out to you that half as many times, which is still a significant, is uh, a lemon. <laughs> so Don't Freak Out is double as important as a lemon. Something that's also close to the lemon is a phrase that I didn't realize was said six times, but apparently, <laughs> according to Jeff, Casey says it six times, which is Morgan is your boss. <laughs> I don't know what context that was said, but I enjoy it immensely because I like I feel like it, it works as kind of a reminder of what how the buy more is structured, but yeah. it also serves as kind of like an insult. Like if you were talking to someone, 
You say, Morgan's your boss. Trust me, of course. I trust you. They say that a lot, yep. 10 mm-hmm. times. Um, I hate guns is said five times. There's Chuck and Shaw both say that. Wow. Chuck, are you okay? Asked by Hannah, Sarah, and Shaw. People complimenting each other's work. You did okay. You did really good. You did a great job. You did great tonight. You've done great work here. Uh, those have been said five times. Uh, not now. We need to focus on the mission. Uh, there is, of course, one that I'm looking for, and it is here. It's complicated. It's complicated. They only say it twice. It. Chuck says it twice. feel like it's more, but, you know, I feel good about the uh, number of times that Don't Freak Out is said. Yeah, um, you should feel good about that. I, I will concede that they do say it a lot this season. <laughs> Chuck's right only gets said once, which is funny. Oh, well, that's true, because <laughs> Chuck is never right. Uh, Morgan says, my name is, <laughs> my name is not Martin, it's Morgan. And Pineapple. This is really interesting. Pineapple, of, of course, is said once by Jeff. And then I'm freaking out is the opposite of don't freak out. And that was said twice by uh, Chuck and I guess Devin. So thank you, Jeff. Oh, wait, hold on. Go, oh. go back to, um, what does Rafe say? Rafe says, says you, th- you think you can be me twice. You wow. think you can be me? You think you can be me? Sorry, that's my impression of Bob. I, I know you probably don't get um, that, but. Mm-hmm, yeah, I haven't actually worked with Bob. Yeah, once you spend time with Bob, you just kind of find yourself falling into it. Hey, you think you could be me? You think you can be me? Uh, okay, Jeremy. All right. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate yeah, you sending you so that much, along. Yeah, thank you so much, Jeff. That was amazing. I always I always love these. I look forward to seeing the one for season four. Yes. Which is very long, so uh, take your time with it. Like, don't... Yeah, don't go too granular. Don't freak granular. out. <laughs> yeah, because he said that he... It took him a very long time to watch the episodes, almost as long as... Uh, or maybe even longer than it takes me to watch an episode of Chuck. And it <laughs> certainly takes me a long time to watch an episode of Chuck. So with that in mind, Aaron, why don't you take us into Chuck versus the Wedding Planner? So we open on a flashback set in Idaho. Young Sarah is running a Girl Scout cookie con where she convinces a very kind woman to give her $84 for cookies that don't exist. This reminded me that I Venmoed a friend $20 for cookies a few months ago, and I haven't heard anything further about it. So uh, I might uh, be a sucker in this case as well. What was that friend's username on Venmo? Um, Nigerian Prince 123. Well, if the cookies are coming from Nigeria, there's probably a long time. For That's something. true. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. I might check in, but it, it'll probably be I'm fine. Sure if he's a prince, I'm sure he's trustworthy. Yeah, I agree. So Sarah leaves the woman behind and heads back to a car being driven by who but Gary Cole. Yes. He's back. Apparently they're in on this con together. Gary Cole is teaching Sarah the ropes of con artistry. He says, once you know all the cons, you'll never be a sucker. And Sarah's excited about this because she don't want to be a sucker. No. Apparently pulling the Girl Scout cookie scam, they have made over two grand, of which Sarah gets $100 to do whatever she wants with. She tells her dad that she wants to go on adventure sometime, just him and her. He takes her home. Apparently she lives with her grandma, and he doesn't. I don't really know where he lives, but she, Sarah is uh, under the guardianship of her grandma. And this begins a plot that this entire episode is addressing that I find to be heartbreaking. So more on that to come. In the present, Chuck and Sarah meet with a wedding planner named Daphne Peralta, who has just, like, a thick, thick, like, Brooklyn kind of accent, even though she's in L.A., whatever. Um, She asks if Sarah is inviting her dad to the wedding. Sarah says no. Her dad doesn't even know that she is getting married. The planner asks if they're ready to pull the trigger, and this is where I got confusing. Um, I've, I've never planned a wedding, and maybe, like, this is probably how they work. I know Josh Schwartz has been married to his beautiful wife for a good amount of time, so he probably knows. But the, the like, wedding plan, I never really, like, I knew wedding planners, but I didn't know there was, like, a booklet that you had to, like, confirm, and, like, that was when you paid them. Did, did this confuse you, or is this how, were you fine? I don't know. I, I think that's a good point. I guess I thought it yeah. was kind of, maybe it's a little weird that <laughs> you get a little book of all the stuff that you agreed upon, but... I maybe maybe was, you do if you have a wedding planner. I don't know. Like I never have. Maybe it was just the show's approach of vi- like creating a visual element to something yeah. that is otherwise mm-hmm. not usually that's more conceptual and doesn't have one co cohesive, uh, one concise visual aspect. That's a I don't that's know. a good point. I have no idea. So whatever they're agreeing to, Chuck and Sarah do agree. No more changes, and they give the wedding planner a check for twenty six thousand dollars. I mean, like, I guess if, like, she handles them, like, if she handles the venue and everything, like, mm. 
I, I don't know. I just don't know how this works. I guess both of us need to sit down and watch JLo's The Wedding Planner so we can finally understand wedding planning. Matthew McConaughey's in that, I think. I don't know. I think he is, right? I don't know. I don't know. But he was in Father's Day, right? Yeah, Matthew McConaughey. Um, his scene is actually one of my favorites. It's actually, if you if you Google um, Matthew McConaughey Father's Day 2011, it um, comes up. It's it's crazy. I mean, it's <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's pretty classic McConaughey what he uh, delivered on set that day. So we were all just we were beside ourselves and and Bob was there and it was a great time. Out in the courtyard, Chuck shows the booklet to Morgan, who's pretty impressed with the whole wedding plan. But he thinks the invites, which are red and black and in the Helvetica font, scream socialism. This prompts Chuck to be a little worried about the invitations. He calls Sarah over and floats the idea of giving Daphne a call to make one final change. Sarah suggests that maybe their invitations promote socialism in a good way. And Chuck responds, is there a good way? Which, yes, there is. His name is Bernie Sanders. Sarah didn't strike me as the uh, as a Bernie kind of person, but I'm down. I'm yeah, I'm I'm for it. So they give Daphne a call, but her number is no longer in service. This prompts some warning bells, especially in Sarah's mind. So they use her business card to go to her office address. And it's just like a random empty lot. Mm -hmm. They've been conned. Sarah is so upset because she has been played for a sucker and she should know better. She decides they're going to take Daphne down. They try to use all the resources at their disposal in Castle to find Daphne, but apparently she's used a fake name, maybe hundreds of fake names, and they can't find anything about her. Chuck suggests that they talk to Beckman and explain what happened, but Sarah has another idea. Cut to Gary Cole, aka Jack, in Miami, selling an empty lot of his own to some businessmen. Sarah shows up, or like, supposedly shows up, she's obviously on a green screen here. I don't know why they did this! (laughs) It was so weird! Yeah, there's so many different ways that they could have handled it because I was like, well, maybe they were filming this and they already had they were filming like two scenes simultaneously and Yvonne couldn't be there when they were filming the Uh stuff with Gary Cole. Mm -hmm. So they had to green screen her in. But I'm like, why? Why even show her? It could have just been a phone call. It could. (laughs) No, she needed to go to Miami and we needed to see a woman's like legs walking in a trench coat or whatever. And then be like, who's in that trench coat? Uh, And then they. Yeah. It's very obvious, very weird, very strange. Also, Miami looks apparently a lot like downtown Los Angeles, but I I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, that's true. Yeah. So Jack excuses himself to talk to a business associate. At dinner, maybe in LA, maybe in Miami, it's kind of unclear where they are. He's flabbergasted to learn that Sarah could have been conned. She doesn't tell him about the wedding, instead says that she and Chuck are planning a big party, you know, as you do, spending $26,000 on a big party. Gary Cole is surprised that she's still in Burbank with the schnook. Haven't heard that in a while. I wonder, was was that on um, Jeff's early list, schnook? Um, I don't remember off the top of my head. I can look it up. We're going to have to. Okay, well, we'll check in it later. Sarah asks Jack if he's ever heard of Daphne, and he says no. He asks why she doesn't just talk to the CIA, and she's shocked by this, that he knows she's a cop, which I thought he already knew that. Like, was did this confuse you too? It did confuse me. And then I noticed on Wikipedia, it said that this was a known continuity issue because apparently in the episode that he was in before, they like he knew that Sarah was some kind of law enforcement. Yeah, because she she lets him escape like he he knows that she's involved in that. Exactly. Um, So but was what was odd to me about the Wikipedia entry was that it was citing CNN. And I was like, why was (laughs) I, I guess there might be like a you know, television reporters or media reporters for CNN.com. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I'm like, I, I don't think you could say, according to CNN, uh, Jack This Burton, one goes all to the top. <laughs> Wolf Blitzer here. As it turns out, <laughs> Jack Burton should already know that Sarah works for the law enforcement. Now we have no. three talking heads from across the political spectrum to argue about this for 45 minutes and to confuse everyone <laughs> who's watching. I've been Wolf Blitzer. So the point of this scene is that um, Sarah lies to her dad and her dad repays her by stealing her wallet, looking through it and finding out maybe for the second time that she is a government agent. Sarah says she's done all she can on her end, but Jack encourages her to just go right above her pay grade and fake it till she makes it. Meanwhile, at the Bymore, Alex and Morgan ambush Casey and tell him that he has to tell Kathleen that he's alive. 
I kind of thought the point of this scene in the last episode was that Alex was going to do this and she was nervous about it and Casey was reassuring her. But maybe I misunderstood and Casey's the one who was scared. I don't know, but that seems to be where this episode is going. Casey doesn't want to talk to Kathleen, but Alex insists. Casey, in turn, insists that Kathleen can't see him in the buy more because she'll be offended that he left her in order to work a minimum wage job, I guess, is the problem. But, in fact, Kathleen is already at the buy more, and she's really cute. I I liked, I liked her. Um, I don't, I'm not familiar with the actress who plays her, but she was, she was really good in this episode, and she looked great. I think this is the first time that she's had speaking Lot, yes. like roles a, a well speaking she did role i feel like she spoke to chuck the time that he pretended to be an electrical whatever a plumber oh right when they were at her house in the closet yeah. yeah it's true so alex ushers kathleen out in a rush but kathleen looks over her shoulder and sees casey and is a little bit confused meanwhile down in castle sarah is encouraging chuck to fake a flash and I'm just going to say it now, I'm really surprised that this episode talks a lot about faking flashes, and they do not hit the very low-hanging fruit of faking an orgasm. So that was um, kind of good on Chuck, but also I feel like they could have done it. It would have been, would have gotten a little chuckle out of me. I feel like they've done that before, though, where they compare yeah. the flashing to... I feel like they've compared flashing to it, but the faking, maybe it's ah. just like they they can't even comprehend that as a plot line. It's just they don't believe it exists. I guess it would be tricky. I mean, I guess it would be kind of hard for a man to fake that. Yeah, OK, <laughs> that's fair. I'll ask my health class teacher. <laughs> so Chuck doesn't want to fake it. Um, he doesn't want to um impugn the sanctity of the intersect. There's a great little bit where they talk about Chuck's flash face and Chuck does an imitation of it and Sarah does an imitation of it and hers is just like really over the top and like cross-eyed and like looks like a sneeze and it's very funny, very cute. We find out that apparently Jack has stolen Sarah's license out of her wallet when he was looking through it and she didn't notice and this leads me to believe that their dinner was actually in Los Angeles because she would have needed her license to get back on a plane. Um, so there's there's just confusion here. I don't know. Has she been driving without a license? I guess I don't look at my license every day, but I feel like I would notice if it was gone. But he uses it to track her down to Chuck's complex, realizing Sarah actually lives with the schnook now. He tries to break in, but Devin catches him, saying that he's the neighborhood watch and asking Jack what he's doing. But Jack charms Devin, then invites himself into Devin's house. Down in Castle, Chuck and Sarah call Beckman. Chuck pretends to flash, and it's really ridiculous when Sarah holds up Daphne's picture. I'm not sure why they had to do this and they couldn't just pretend that Chuck had flashed before the call. Like, I don't really know why he has to pretend to do it live. But he says that Daphne is apparently connected to some dangerous people. When Beckman asks who, Chuck glances down in a newspaper and sees the name Arthur Novikov, who is an international terrorist who the CIA has been unable to catch. Beckman is immediately on red alert and calls the heads of the FBI, NSA, and so on, and says she wants every resource they have dedicated to finding Daphne dead or alive. Once they get off the call, Sarah is a little mad at Chuck for all of this, for picking out Novikov's name off the paper, but it's kind of Sarah's fault, and I feel like she should be a little um, lenient with Chuck in this case. Yeah, I mean, not everyone can just make up things off the top of their head <laughs> like that. You yeah, know? that's true. Yep. Not everyone mm -hmm. thinks as well on the fly. It's a talent. It, re it really is a talent. You know, someone who I have heard is really good at improv is um, Robert De Niro. Oh, yeah. Oh, Bob. He's so funny. So back in the Woodcomb residence, Jack is playing what apparently is called the shell game. I just think of it as the ball under a cup game, but I guess it does have an official name. It's trying to play it with Clara when Devin asks if Jack's there for the big day. Jack doesn't know what Devin's talking about. Devin lies to avoid awkwardness, saying things about carpe diem and every day's a big day, but Jack is suspicious. Jack comments on how good Devin is with the baby, and Devin explains that he learned Clara's signals. Jack says that he doesn't really know a lot of Sarah's signals because she plays things close to the chest, but he did teach her that the second you let your guard down, you get hurt. Just, I mean, he did, he did teach her that, but uh, continuing to be very heartbreaking, very <laughs> sad. When Devin has his back turned, Jack finds the wedding booklet again that uh, just Daphne gave them. 
um, and finds out that Sarah is indeed getting married, and that is the big day to which Devin was referring. Then he asks Devin if Devin has HBO, and implies he's gonna hang out maybe all day, just just for a while. They're gonna they're gonna have some boys time. <laughs> Which we unfortunately do not get to see. We don't see what no. it's like between uh, Devin and Sarah Walker's estranged father hanging out uh, in the middle of the day watching who knows what on HBO. Maybe they... what about well, probably probably Game of Thrones. Oh, probably Game the of first Thrones. episode of Game of Thrones. Maybe they're gonna watch Family Feud instead. Maybe they're gonna be like, yeah, it's not worth going all the way to HBO. Let's just settle on whatever's being shown on network television in the middle of the day. Oh, it's game shows. Oh, it's Family Feud. What a fun I don't know. show. I don't know why we're in such like disagreement about this because I don't even like Game of Thrones. <laughs> and now like our now our audience is like, oh, one of them hasn't seen it and one of them hates it. We're not listening anymore. Okay. Well, we'll let those people turn off the podcast. And they're gone. Okay, so now I can resume. Devin texts Chuck about Jack being at the apartment complex, which prompts Chuck to ask Sarah if Jack knows about the wedding. Sarah realizes that Jack must have stole her driver's license and her wallet back. At dinner on, in Miami, on the airplane, in California. No one really knows. Uh, but she says that Jack is not invited because he's never been there for her at other major moments of her life. Why would he go to her wedding? Chuck and Sarah at this point also believe they found Daphne using a CIA satellite. Daphne appears to be leaving town in a uh, communal airport shuttle, which I don't think I have too many like weird... Um, covid reflexes like sometimes i know i've talked to people who are like oh sometimes i see things in movies or tvs like and now that i'm in a covid mindset i get weirded out by watching them on tv i feel like that hasn't really happened to me except for in this scene when (laughs) uh chuck books a ride on the same vehicle and we cut to a shot of chuck fully in disguise getting into the same shuttle as daphne and all these people are crammed in there's like a 10 or so people in this van no one's wearing masks because that would be insane. Why would they do that in 2011? Um, but I was just like, they're so close. They're they need to be wearing masks. They shouldn't. There should. They're not. Should not be that many people in that van. Um, but it's all good. Uh, Sarah follows the shuttle in her amazing sports car. I don't know what kind of car it is, but it's just it's fantastic. Uh, Sarah says that they need to be fast on extracting Daphne because Beckman has sent Casey and a SWAT team out onto the road to apprehend Daphne as well. On the shuttle, Chuck sneaks up behind Daphne and reveals that he's the same guy that she just swindled and that he actually works for the CIA. He handcuffs himself to Daphne, and Daphne is unimpressed. She then makes a big scene about Chuck being her crazy ex-boyfriend who has been stalking her. Everyone on the shuttle, including the driver, is caught up in this drama, and Daphne continues to paint Chuck as an unhinged pervert. As this is happening, Beckman gives Casey orders to attack the super shuttle, with guns drawn since Daphne is smart and dangerous. Sarah puts the pressure on Chuck to work things out, but the shuttle continues its descent into chaos. No one believes that Chuck is a secret agent, so Chuck tries to intimidate the driver by telling him he's unstable and will expose himself to everyone in the vehicle if he, if the driver doesn't pull over right away. This apparently works uh, as we next see the shuttle dropping off Chuck and Daphne on the side of the road. Daphne is not surprised when Sarah shows up and tells them both that she's not going to fall for their whole CIA con. At which point, Casey and his team appear and trap Daphne in a giant net. (laughs) Seems like a pretty believable con to me. Back in Castle, Beckman finds out the truth of why Chuck and Sarah wanted to get Daphne arrested. Beckman and Casey are both disappointed, and Beckman suspends Chuck and Sarah, despite Chuck's argument that Daphne has been screwing over countless couples in the L.A. metropolitan area. As Chuck flips through Daphne's binder, he flashes on a list of actual Hungarian scientists hidden in one of the wedding guest lists. Um... He tries to tell Beckman, but Beckman won't believe him. It's kind of a whole... The real boy boy who cried wolf. Is that what you were about to say? Yeah, how did you know? It's like you read my mind. He continues on to say that these Hungarians have all of Iran's nuclear secrets on one portable drive called the Zephyr, but Beckman still won't believe him. She says that Chuck and Sarah aren't going anywhere until they earn back the trust of the United States government, which she says is no easy feat. We get to a commercial break, and when we come back, we see another flashback to Sarah's childhood. She's practicing her shell game swindle on her stuffed animals. She conveniently explains that the key to the shell game is that the prize is not hidden underneath any of the shells. And it's actually hidden somewhere else. Um, she says this to the stuffed animals, obviously, because she's a lonely only child who wants to talk to her stuffed animals. No, I'm sorry. Present, present company excluded. Um, but she... She says it, it's framed in a way where she says this directly to the camera. So she's saying it directly to the viewer. 
Uh-huh. Um, so I'm assuming this is something that the show wants us to remember about the nature of shell <laughs> games. Mm-hmm. Uh, young Sarah, who, which also happens to be the name of the Chuck prequel slash spinoff coming to NBC this spring, <laughs> is disrupted when she overhears Jack arguing with her grandmother about uh, money outside on the yard. Sarah's grandmother tells Jack that he's no longer welcome there and Jack doesn't know what to do. Sarah looks over at her piggy bank where she's kept all of her con money and realizes what she must do. As Jack gets ready to leave, Sarah hops in the car with him. With her suitcase and piggy bank, it says that she wants them to go on an adventure, just the two of them. Back in the present, Sarah is sitting on her couch, disgruntled as Jack pours himself and Sarah glasses of Johnny Walker. Jack asks Sarah what's going on, and she says it's just a work thing, but Jack insists that Sarah can trust him. Sarah explains about what's going on with the um, the Hungarians who are named the Brothers Klug and the Zephyr, which um, the brothers apparently pass between themselves. Sarah thinks that it's irrelevant to share with Jack, but Jack views this the same way as he views a con, so he's interested. Sarah adds that the wedding uh, they were supposed to go to was never actually going to happen because Daphne faked it. But without the wedding, Sarah has no way to capture these men in in person unless she can throw a $100,000 wedding in 24 hours without the CIA's help. To this, Jack says that Sarah doesn't need the CIA because she has him. Cut to Jack presenting his plan for the wedding con to Chuck, Sarah and Morgan using an overhead projector. Jack starts off by saying that he learned everything that he knows in the 80s. So the youngins need to be patient with him. At which point I wanted to be like, um, Jack, do you know what show you're on? This entire series is a celebration and idolization of 80s culture. And <laughs> in fact, the last time that Jack visited these characters in the other episode that he was in, Morgan had literally just purchased a goddamn DeLorean that <laughs> ended true. up saving Jack's life. These people know about the 80s. They're, they love the 80s. Chuck should be subtitled Chuck, a celebration of the 1980s. <laughs> um, so Jack explains that the ballroom that Daphne had allegedly booked for the wedding was actually already booked months in advance for a uh, bat mitzvah party. Chuck thinks that it means that they're dead in the water, but Jack says that the bat mitzvah starts at 8, so their wedding reception will start at 6.30. I don't know if you've known this. I've, I, or how, I don't know where you stand on this, but I've never been invited to a mitzvah. I've never been. I have not either. My um, boyfriend was bar mitzvahed, so I have heard a lot about his special day, although I think it involved more of a brunch and less of a, um, this type of big reception. But mm-hmm. I... I I know the theory. <laughs> I I think that this was um to my eyes was a little bit like aggressive with like the um I I think like having a large portrait of the person being bar or bat mitzvah is normal, but it was a little bit aggressive I think for humor purposes to have a lots of like stars of David and like blue and white around. It was mm-hmm. a little bit much. Um, right. But I was I don't know if I've, I must have told you about this at some point, how like I was not only was I not invited, but I was like deliberately not invited. Like I was excluded from oh, going right, yes. to the, I, I do remember this story um, where in middle school, as as anyone who's gone through middle, middle school knows, it's the the absolute worst um, <laughs> and just a traumatic time from beginning to end. And uh, there was. One of my classmates who is happened to be in a similar, the same social circle as I um, wasn't necessarily friends with him, but same, same cafeteria lunch table, you know, like, so that pretty much means that Mm, you're, you know, you're rolling with the same click. Um, Uh He made a very uh, pointed effort to not invite me to his bar mitzvah. Like everyone, like so many other people in the grade were going. He didn't want to, he didn't want you to see him become a man. No, I don't. That's his right. No, it was very clearly like a, oh, you're not cool enough to come to my bar mitzvah because it was me and this other kid who did not get invited. And there was a very nasty rumor going about about this other kid at the time that was like, of course, you wouldn't want to invite this kid if you if you believe this rumor. I understand that. But you're not inviting me. Well, I don't have any rumors going about me that I don't know about. You just don't want me there. Anyhow, so my only experience with bar mitzvahs is being on AOL Instant Messenger at like 8.30 p.m. on a Saturday night, messaging this other kid who also was not invited because <laughs> we were the only two people online being like, hey, man, I can't believe we didn't get invited. I know it sucks. Why didn't he invite us? We're cool, too. Um, but <laughs> It's you know really what? sad. It, it is really sad. And 
a, a couple follow-ups to the story. A listener, if you'll engage me, I'm sorry. I'm just, I, I have therapy in a couple of days. I'm sorry that it's all coming <laughs> out now. But, um, so the first follow-up is that I, I encountered the kid who was hosting the bar mitzvah a few years ago, like on the night before Thanksgiving, um, uh-huh. like at a local bar kind of thing. Um, still an asshole. He's still a jerk. <laughs> I, I thought I, you were going to say he apologized or no. he invited you to a makeup bar mitzvah. Is that a thing? Can I be invited to a makeup bar mitzvah? I mean, he, I guess he could invite you to like another like traditional Jewish rite. Yeah. So what that like maybe when he gets married or something, I think that, yeah, that's maybe only a fair. wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I was going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, you know, we're just kids like that. You know, whatever. Who cares? And I was talking to him like, no, you still suck. You're. I was like, oh, so what do you do for work? He's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm a history teacher. I'm like, oh, that's that's great. Being a teacher, being an educator, history, that's important. Kids need to. I was like, no, I only do it because they uh, otherwise they wouldn't pay me full time to be the football coach. But that's like really what I'm into is being the the coach for the, the baseball team or whatever. I just have to do the history thing as a side hustle. Second follow up is that the other kid who is not invited to the bar mitzvah alongside me went on to serve the United States Navy, served on a submarine, worked his ass off on that submarine doing submarine shit like nuclear whatever, and is an upstanding human being. And I'm proud to be in that company with, (laughs) I'd rather be not invited with a a fine veteran of the United States Navy than be in the company of some kind of dickhead baseball teacher. You want to talk about a declassified scene? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) So there's a declassified scene now where Casey is performing some kind of mundane task at the Bymore when Jeff and Lester walk by, loudly wondering what Chuck and Sarah needed all that styrofoam and frosting for. Jeff suggests that maybe they're building a house. Casey overhears this and immediately suspects that Chuck and Sarah are up to something. And he rolls out. Little does he know that Kathleen has been shadowing him this entire time at the Bymore. Kathleen follows Casey out of the store. That would have um, filled in some gaps. I I wonder, um, I presume they had to pay Jeff and Lester for that, even though it didn't make it, it into the episode. They haven't really been around for a while. Yeah, it was, they were only a, a fleeting second of this episode. It also takes out the, um, kind of lessens the emotional punch of when we see Kathleen at the, spoiler alert, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. Yeah, later. I was like, is she, um, is she a guest at this wedding? What's going on? So on the day of the bat mitzvah wedding, Uh, which is also the name of a new show coming to TLC and Discovery Plus (laughs) this summer. Sarah poses as Daphne to take control of the bat mitzvah from the ballroom manager. She explains that the bat mitzvah girl, Tammy, specifically requested a Hungarian wedding-themed bat mitzvah, which is a surprise to the ballroom manager. Sarah, Jack, Chuck, and Morgan then get to work transforming Tammy's dream bat mitzvah into a dream Hungarian wedding reception. The group is proud of their work, but Casey shows up in an attempt to stop Chuck and Sarah from getting into even more trouble. Chuck explains about the Klugs and the Zephyr, but Casey is skeptical. It's only when Sarah asks that Chuck is telling the truth that Casey believes them. He asks how he can help, and Jack says that he has an idea for what old cop face can do. Ah, yes, old cop face. Old cop face, we haven't heard that in a while either. Later that evening, the reception goes off without a hitch, with Chuck serving as the DJ. He's playing uh, Arcade Fire's funeral and um, feeling good, and Huey Lewis. Casey was a great DJ at Sarah's High School Reunion, and I was disappointed that that wasn't the job that he was given. He was an awesome DJ, a a tremendous DJ. He's also a great (laughs) bartender. He's not doing either of these things at this function, but um, Morgan is posing as a server. He's handing out hors d'oeuvres, and Sarah is continuing to be Daphne. Chuck decides to slow things down for a slow dance. I, I think like in a way of to get the Klugs out on the dance floor. I don't. I don't know. Chuck's getting really into it. You know, it's a wedding. Jack asks Sarah to dance, which catches her off guard. Jack says that this might be the only chance that he has to dance with his daughter at a wedding. And Sarah tells him the truth that she and Chuck are getting married. She apologizes, but Jack says that he understands about not getting invited. He says that he's surprised that Sarah is settling down instead of following in her old man's transient footsteps. But Sarah says that she's found a home in Burbank and that she's happy. And um, I'm sorry, this is just it's making me emotional because I'm thinking about the day, you know, maybe someday in the future when, you know, Coco gets married and I have to, I get to dance with Coco at her. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, Do you think her wedding will be Hungarian wedding themed? I think so. I mean, she's, she's a huge fan, even though she's a baby now, she's a huge fan of the Hungarian people and culture. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, They grow up so fast. Gotta, gotta cherish every (laughs) moment. 
So at this moment, the Klug brothers arrive at the reception fashionably late and the gang puts their plan into action. Sarah approaches the first Klug brother and makes him believe that he's paying for the open bar. He's rightfully upset about this, so agrees to go back with Sarah to like the the office or like the kitchen area to sort everything out. Uh, When they go back there, Sarah hits him over the head with a metal cake stand. Morgan then leads in the second Klug brother into the same room. Sarah proceeds to hit him with the cake stand as well. Sarah pages Casey to let him know that it's time for him to take down the third Klug. Casey is about to do this, but as he approaches the third Klug who crosses his path, but his former fiance slash current widow, Kathleen, what's she doing here? Casey (gasps) immediately backs down and says that he can't get to the Klug. Kathleen sees Casey and makes to follow him as Jack swoops in to handle the third Klug. So meanwhile, Kathleen follows Casey into the hallway. He says he didn't want her to find out this way and ask what she's doing there. She says she followed him from the buy more. Meanwhile, Jack lures the third brother into the back and all seems to be going well. Except for Casey. He's talking to Kathleen, who is confused as to why he is alive, but apparently even more confused as to why he left her for such dead-end jobs as a security guard and at the buy more. <laughs> this is exactly what Casey was worried about, but I, it feels like a, a bit of a jump to me. Like, grief is weird, and I guess that she's betrayed that he lied and left her, but also... Clearly something is afoot if they had a funeral for him and, like, faked his death. Like, it's maybe a little bit more than just, like, yeah, I just really wanted to work at the buy more. (laughs) Um, I also, like, does she really care what he's doing with his life 20-odd years later? Like, this is just weird. This is a weird, like, and it's also, like, I I know that this whole show, like, the whole premise of the show is dismissive to working at the buy more, but it's also, like, a little bit, like harsh towards people in retail like just like that that's like the lowest of the low that casey could be doing or that they there's some kind of implication that being with kathleen and working at the buy more mutually exclusive that you can only do one or the other that he could possibly ever be with kathleen and also work at his alleged dream job of the buy more slash (laughs) um moonlighting as a security guard So Casey doesn't really have time to talk about all of this because he's in the middle of a mission. So he says he can't talk right now and asks her to leave. Apparently Kathleen talked to Alex and Alex explained that Casey works for the government. So I don't know, like, I mean, I guess that's a lot to take in, but I feel like it does line up with faked his death and is now like, and also like, how does she even know he's a security guard? Like he has an earpiece on, he's wearing a suit. I would have assumed he was like with the CIA. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Apparently, Kathleen doesn't believe any of this. Casey encourages Kathleen to leave once again, and Kathleen says she will, but only if Casey approaches Alex and admits that he's not really an agent. So, I don't I don't know what went on in this scene at all. It's, like, emotional, but I don't understand it. So, whatever, we'll just leave it at that. Things start to go poorly with the rest of the plan, because the couple is about to cut the cake, and all the brothers apparently are clean. The Zephyr device is nowhere to be found. Also, apparently, like, since Chuck left the DJ booth, I, I thought he left music on, but, like, the party seems to be silent at this point. No one's <laughs> no one's playing music, so just things are going poorly. So in the back room, Jack and Sarah discover that the fact that none of the brothers have the Zephyr mean this is oddly similar to a shell game, so someone must, someone else must have the weapon. On the floor, the happy couple is cutting the cake when... The knife makes a horrendous sound, and everyone realizes that the cake is made of styrofoam. The father of the bride realizes that Morgan must have something to do with this, based on the expression on his face and his nervousness, so he takes him at gunpoint to the parking garage. Sarah and Chuck hear this happening and rush off to help. There's a standoff, which involves Casey, but the standoff comes to an end when Jack walks in front of the father of the bride's gun and begins to make a speech. He says that based on the fact that the father of the bride is in a parking garage holding several people at gunpoint, he might not be the best father in the world, but he makes a little speech about being a good dad and hoping that someday our little girls might be happy despite us. Just like Chris and Coco. So ultimately, Jack convinces the father of the bride, who doesn't have a name, to put down his gun and, I guess, repent for his actions, whatever. And apparently that guy also has the Zephyr. I don't think that was made clear at any point, but apparently he was the um, shell. I don't know what the word for that would be. He was, he had the ball in the Fallen Cup game. Mm -hmm. And so they take him in, they take the weapon in, and Kathleen, who is in her car, also in the parking garage, sees Casey, like, putting a man in handcuffs, referring to being in in the NSA, whatever, and she knows that he was telling the truth. Back in Castle, Beckman reprimands Sarah and Chuck, 
but she says that her superior were impressed with the second half of their plan at the bat mitzvah wedding. Chuck promises to never fake a flash again. Beckman welcomes Chuck and Sarah back to duty without further questions. Back at home, Jack is packing up. Apparently he stayed the night or like whatever, and he's preparing to leave. Chuck says that Sarah will be back soon so Jack can say goodbye, but Jack says they've never been good at goodbyes. Chuck takes the initiative at that point to ask Jack to walk Sarah down the aisle, which is something that he apparently knows Sarah wants, but is too proud to admit to either of them. Jack says no. He says that he promised himself that he would never promise Sarah something he couldn't give her. Chuck asks Jack to stay for dinner, and Jack agrees. Across the way, Kathleen and Casey are finally having it out. They talk a little bit about Alex and the similarities that Casey and her share. Casey says that Kathleen has done a great job of parenting, and Kathleen says Casey is a hero. She says, you have everything you've ever wanted, but there's a little pause, and we are led to wonder, does he have everything he's ever wanted? Well, he works at the Buy More, so probably, yeah. Probably, yeah. In the next scene, Chuck calls Sarah baby, which isn't something that really happens that much, and it really threw me. I was not into it. Yeah, it stood out. I didn't know if that was just me being weird or if I was like, <laughs> no, that seems really forced and unnatural. <laughs> um, he, he calls her this while coming in the door, carrying a bunch of grocery ingredients. He says he's got all the ingredients for dinner with her dad. He's apparently making chicken pepperoni, which, as we all know, is his classic Chuck Bartowski meal. Mm -hmm. But Sarah says that Jack is no longer with them. He's he's not dead. He just he just <laughs> he <left>. passed away. <laughs> <laughs> he's just laying dead on the couch. <laughs> yeah. Um. She. Um. In explaining this, she says, "Once you know all the cons, you can never be a sucker." We cut to another flashback, a follow up to the scene where young Sarah ran away with Jack. Sarah has fallen asleep in the car, and Jack brings her back home, carries her in, and tucks her into bed and leaves her. As he drives away, we see that he's kept her piggy bank, which caused me to shout at my screen, you fucking dick. But then, hang on, in the future, or I guess in the present, one could say, Sarah comes into her in Chuck's bedroom to find the piggy bank still on her bed, and it's unbroken. Jack never even broke into it. He left her a note to say that he only ever added to the money, and what's inside now will more than cover the cost of her wedding to the schnook. And then Sarah just kind of sits with a piggy bank and has a has a nice little moment. And I, too, had a nice little moment where I got a little choked up because this, um, I mean, we could talk about it more, but I think Sarah and Jack's relationship is, like, very complicated for such a, um, like, generally funny, like, easygoing show. I think mm. it's a, um touching on some really intense themes of, like, complicated familial relationships and a little bit of abuse and a little bit of, like, maybe more neglect than abuse, but it's, mm -hmm. like, it made me really respect Sarah as a character that she's, like, gone through so much. Like, this is, like, a traumatic upbringing. So, it was, it was a sweet moment, but gave me a lot to think about. It also made me tear up a little bit because I was thinking about how much better off it probably would have been if Jack took that money and invested it. And uh, that probably would have made the money grow even more instead of just uh, putting a few dollars in a piggy bank here or there. Obviously, it's not just a few dollars because there's wads of hundreds in there, I guess. Uh -huh. So, but I don't know. I was like, oh, did he open up like a some kind of high interest savings account for Sarah? No, he didn't. He just held on to this massive piggy bank that he's been lugging with him around the world, apparently. Yeah. Chuck versus the wedding planner. Chuck versus the wedding planner. So let's plan our own uh, weddings to what we'd like to marry this week. And then we'll uh, discuss what we're going to kill as well in Chuck, Mary, Kill. Aaron, what would you like to marry? I thought the scene where Sarah imitates Chuck's flash face was really hilarious. So in addition to just the general emotional through line with Jack slash Gary Cole, um, I think that was my favorite part of the episode. I that was also part of my Mary. I okay. I kind of lumped it into I appreciated how the first act of this episode kind of allowed the show to be a little self-referential and kind of sort of meta with how Chuck and Sarah decided to lie to Beckman. Uh, uh -huh. You know, Sarah making the intersect face is also a big part of that. But I appreciated how the show kind of took a step back and said, you know, we know this is how things usually go at the start of an episode. So let's let the characters kind of also acknowledge that there are these things that always happen that they can and uh -huh. go through them to go through the motions for the wrong reasons i thought was really fun and we don't typically see that so um obviously i'm happy to see gary cole as well um but 
I uh, I thought that was a nice little touch, made it for a little different viewing experience. I agree. What would you like to kill? So I thought that, like, while I generally think this episode worked for me, I thought the super shuttle scene was just odd. Mm. Um, all COVID concerns aside, I. Like the tension of like Chuck and Sarah being in a race against the CIA to get the, to this woman who wronged them, but this super shuttle thing was weird. It brought up a lot more questions than I think it brought up answers. Um, I just like it has to be said. I don't really appreciate like the making light of like stalking and like flashers and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it also just brought up the question of like, I know these people are on a speeding van like hurtling down the highway, but like. Once um, Daphne, like, says, like, this is my stalker, like, someone help, like, no one really does anything. They're just all like, oh, no, this man is going to expose himself to us. Like, the driver won't even pull over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was just, like, weird and didn't really fit with the tone of everything else. Like, it, it lasted for kind of a long time. Um, the only part of it that I thought, like, worked was, like, the end when, like, Daphne thinks that... Sarah and Chuck are trying to con her, and then it turns out that they are actually government agents. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, like, the fact that they did that and that they caught her, like, we hear from Beckman that, like, Daphne isn't going to press charges, but, like, if the government knows that, da- like, couldn't they get their money back? Like, they, I I don't know. It, it brought up more questions. I guess I would have preferred that Daphne just, like, is the impetus for them getting to Jack and then, like, they never find her. Or, like, maybe they find her at the end or something. Like, that scene was just weird. Yeah, that's a good point. I That uh, that scene did kind of um, stick out from the rest of the, the episode, sort of. I could have preferred it if they had another little mini-adventure, maybe including Gary Cole at that. Yeah. Instead of having this kind of weird sort of thing taking place in a vacuum. But, yeah, that's all. Uh, that's all valid. Um, for me, I'm upset that there's no follow through on the bat mitzvah. Were they able to get all of those Hungarian wedding guests out of there by 730? Even if I mean, the, that's a good question. Even if all the guests guests left at 730, that would mean that the party was only going on for an hour from 630 to 730. And then uh-huh. Team Bartowski would have to clean up everything from the wedding in half an hour in time for the bat mitzvah to start on time. And I just I'm concerned that Team Bar- Bartowski, um, ruin Tammy's bat mitzvah because it seems like they did. I don't think all those guests were leaving for eight o'clock. Um, and I just feel bad because I think, you know, maybe I'm projecting a lot onto Tammy, but I feel like Tammy, like this was going to be her big night. You know, she was going to prove to all the cool kids in her school that she could have a cool bat mitzvah. And this was going to be like her time to shine. But then all the guests arrive there and find this destroyed wedding venue from a, um, this, this wedding that reception that had already gone on. And, you know, maybe, Maybe it would, um, it's not really going to help Tammy's social status, you know? I'm just concerned about that. That's what I'm concerned about. That's, yeah. Well, obviously, you've had some experiences in the past with bar and bat mitzvahs, and that is particularly going to hit heavy for you. Thank you. So, I understand. (laughs) I appreciate that. Uh, So, next we have, of course, uh, the one, the only, the scooter scale, where we rate this episode on a scale of zero to five corn dogs based off of how much we liked this episode in memory of one um, Scooter. I don't know his last name. I don't know. Maybe Scooter's his last name. And I feel like this has come up before. <laughs> Probably. I mean, we've we've talked about the Scooter scale a number of times already. So yeah. I will just let us get into it. Aaron, how many corn dogs would you like to give this episode? So I genuinely enjoyed this episode. The super shuttle scene aside. So I'm going to give it a four. Oh. I think that the emotional through line um, was strong enough that I just like really like this was a really strong Sarah episode. It was also a decently strong Casey episode, even though like mm. the actual mechanics of his issues with Kathleen didn't really make sense to me. I think that it was nice like to have him tell her that he's alive. I don't, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't remember, like, that they get back together or anything like that. So I think that's also an interesting element, that it's just, like, now she's gonna know that he's alive. Mm -hmm. um, And that, like, removes some of the secrecy, but it adds some complications. Um, And I think that I just have a really big appreciation for, like, Sarah as a character now. And I like that she got, like, her 
upbringing and her motivations and the way she approaches life got such a big focus in this episode. We didn't really have a lot of, like, Chuck things. Um, the only other problem I had about this episode was, I think it's ridiculous that Chuck would, like, foist Gary Cole upon Sarah to, like, walk her down the aisle. Like, I think that's just another example of something that I'm sure if Sarah found out about it, she would be like, that's so sweet. Thank you, Chuck. But, like, <laughs> it's stupid and not to be encouraged. Um, but otherwise, I thought this had, like, equal turns of, like, funny and emotional, and I genuinely enjoyed it. So, four corn dogs. Nice. I gave it three out of five. Um, okay. I feel like it's a pretty solid three for me. I was obviously happy to see Gary Cole back, and I did enjoy he and Sarah's arc throughout this episode, and um, I think they both did a really good job. I think Gary Cole, you know, in particular, does a good job of playing characters who are, you know, full of shit, but also really likable and human. It didn't really occur to me before in his previous episode, but in this episode, it dawned on me how similar his character in, in this Jack is to his character in Talladega Nights, where he's playing uh, Will Ferrell's estranged deadbeat father. Very similar. Um, I'm glad that we got some resolution with Casey and Kathleen. That was a pleasant surprise that I didn't really anticipate. I felt like Chuck and Sarah, um, their plot, I don't know. I felt like it was missing something, even though the idea of two super spies being conned in their personal lives is kind of funny. I feel like things were kind of left unresolved with Daphne, you know, like what happened to her. I kept thinking yeah. that the, you know, the whole Soviet inspired wedding invites meant that Daphne had some kind of connection to the Volkovs, which this episode doesn't really confirm nor deny, but the whole, like, I thought they were doing going to do more with the socialist or communist looking wedding package, but that was not the case. Um, I appreciated that the episode ended on a sweet note because that doesn't always happen. So when it does, it is extra nice. So yeah, I think it was um, definitely better than the past couple of episodes that we've we've seen in this season four. So I agree. Gary Cole, if you could only we we hardly knew you. I don't think he's probably he's is he going to come back? You think for the actual wedding? You think we're going to see him again? Um, he could. He could be in. He could be one of the many guest stars that appears in season five. He could be. I don't know. Guess we'll find out. We will have to see. Um, so, Aaron, what did you learn this week? Okay, so I had two lessons. Uh -huh. One comes from Gary Cole himself, which is con means confidence. Yes. So I think that's something that we could all carry into our daily lives. But the other one comes from another man who's near and dear to my heart. And I'm just going to let the words speak for themselves. Fathers, be good to your daughters. Daughters will love like you do. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers. So mothers, be good to your daughters, too. <laughs> it just makes me think about Coco. <laughs> <laughs> One day Coco is going to become a lover, Chris. Don't you dare say that about my daughter. <laughs> uh, this week I learned that some people can write checks for $26,000. <laughs> yeah, they can. I saw that. I was like, that's crazy. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, what about the money that Sarah, like, was worried about with her prenup? Like, was that, was are we led to believe that was what she spent on the wedding? Or, like, did she not have that? Was that what was in the piggy bank? I was thinking about that. I, I was, I'm gravitating towards it being that this was the money that was in her prenup. But is $26,000, like, enough to have a prenup over? Probably not, right? It's a, it's a, it's a sizable chunk of change, but it's probably not like we need to have a contract about this. The piggy, yeah, was the piggy bank? She didn't know about the piggy bank, so she that's not what the prenup yeah. money was. Maybe the $26,000 was just part of the prenup money. I mean, maybe it was, or maybe it was just like she has like this separate other money that like she wouldn't even touch. Like it's just solely for the purpose of helping her dad. Yeah. Who knows? You know, this episode is about kind of, you know, half-truths and cons and whatnot. And, well, Aaron, I have to tell you that I've been conning you this whole time. What? Uh, I did not work on a Father's Day horror film, horror what? comedy film. But you had all those stories about Bob! I was making them up. Oh, my God. I have not actually met Robert De Niro. I've never worked with him. Um, so. Okay, well, while you were recapping your section of the episode, I, like, went and I, like, bought a screen printed t-shirt of like you and bob and uh -huh. wrote 
best friends forever. Yeah. And now you're just that's that's going to come to your house and it's just a bunch of lies. I need to I need to I need to go think about this. I can't look at you right now. Okay. Well, on a rather somber note, this is Chris Gillespie reminding you that food is sexy. I just want you to think about like I know Coco's sitting there right next to you. Like what kind of example you're setting for her? Well, maybe she will um someday, you know, grow up to be better than than I deserve. I don't remember what the lesson was from this episode, <laughs> but Gary Cole phrased it very eloquently. My name is Erin Arada, letting you know that anything is possible, even your best friend betraying you, just ripping your heart out and stomping on it. Goodbye. Okay, we'll see you next week. Look, I'm really sorry. I thought you knew I was kidding. Thanks for listening. As always, a big thanks to the artist Hadakoa and the fine folks at freemusicarchive.org for providing us with our theme song, Warm Up. If you want to drop us a line, you can reach us at gocheckyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Go Check Yourself on your preferred podcast platform. New episodes come out every Monday morning and you do not want to miss a new episode. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.